0: So, As Brother Bruce has already mentioned, uh, we are continuing a series in relation to the devil. Uncle Grant very kindly uh, did the devil in the Old Testament last week, and we obviously considered some of the key issues that are relevant uh, in relation to the devil. Obviously, the word Satan is very critical uh, in relation to the Old Testament, Uh, and we looked at some of the specific examples of where that word was used. Now we often say the devil's in the detail, uh, but we looked in quite detail at some of those uh, references and couldn't really find reference to what the church often describes as the devil. Uh, We found that uh, there were references which referred to false gods. Uh, We looked at some examples which referred to adversaries, people just opposing other people. Uh, Even situations where the word Satan or the concept of a devil applied to angels, or in one case actually even God himself. So we should have walked away with an impression that uh, the devil, the concept of devil, is actually quite broad in its focus. And we're actually gonna find quite similar impression from the New Testament. So what are we going to specifically look at? Again, we're gonna go into a little bit of detail, looking at some specific words. Uh, It's gonna be slightly different from what we did last week, given the fact that, of course, the New Testament is written in Greek, so we have a a few new new words to look at. One of the main ones being uh, the word there, diabolos. Uh, And we'll look at how that's used, obviously frequently translated as the devil, but uh, it is used in other situations as well. One key point I'd like to make, even at this overview level, is that the idea of the devil is mainly found in the New Testament. So the occurrences of the word devil are far more frequent in the New Testament, and even the word Satan, which, as you would have learnt last week, is a Hebrew word the Old Testament being written in Hebrew, which has been copied directly into our English text. Even though that's a Hebrew word closely associated with the Old Testament, it occurs far more frequently in the New Testament than it does in the Old Testament. So no matter which aspect of this particular topic you look at, you'll find that it is more prevalent in the New Testament. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, that is actually quite strange. If this concept of a devil, as we have it described to us by the churches, is a fundamental issue that we need to understand, For those of you that have spent time looking at the Old Testament, you will appreciate that it does set the foundation for key principles and themes that run throughout the whole Bible. It spends a lot of time talking about things like the source and origin of sin. So you would imagine that if the devil, as so described, is so critical to our proper understanding of those types of topics, you would think that it would be mentioned in the Old Testament, perhaps even more frequently than in the New Testament. That is definitely not the case. So even at this point, we start to have perhaps a few questions about how the devil is being described and whether it is such a fundamental issue uh, that really uh, needs the focus that we'll give it tonight. Now, the other point that we need to note is that the translation of the word devil is actually used both as a noun or as a proper noun. So it can actually be used as the devil It's also used as an adjective to describe people's behaviour. In fact, we've got uh, one example there where uh, a group of believers are warned that they don't become a false accuser. And the word that is being used there is that word diabolos. So that reference there in Timothy is exactly that. So you can see that it's not just being used as a name of someone, it's actually used as a general title, uh, but it's also used as a sort of description for a particular type of behaviour. There is one other word that we'll also look at. Uh, There is also quite a few references in the New Testament to the concept of a demon. And they are actually, that word daemon is actually translated uh, as devil in some cases, but in many many other cases, actually it's uh, used and translated as a demon, particularly in the more modern translations. So we will spend a little bit of time talking about that concept. It is frequently used in the idea of the miracles which Jesus did in healing people and casting out devils or demons, as it's referred to in some references. So that's what we'll basically look at. We won't be looking at all the references, of course. There's actually about 101 different references to the devil in the New Testament. So again, just highlights how significant it is. In fact, by way of contrast, the word devil or devils is, only occurs four times in the Old Testament. So um, I certainly got the easier topic. Uh, Brother Grant had to deal with a, a very sparsely uh, defined topic uh, last, last week. But uh, hopefully we'll be able to get a clear understanding of what the word devil means and how it should be interpreted. So, we've already seen that sometimes this word diabolos is used to describe a group of people or a pattern of behaviour that a group of people might get involved in. But let's look at things in a little bit more detail. Let's look at some specific examples, and particularly examples where the word devil is used, where we know who they're referring to. So, here's the first one to just have a look at. John chapter 6 and verse 70, Jesus is discussing with his disciples and talking about their calling, and he says to them, Have not I chosen you 12, being the 12 disciples, and one of you is a devil? So again, this is the word diabolos. So who is he referring to? Well, obviously he's referring to Judas. So Judas, we find out later on, was a thief. He would later betray Jesus to the Jews, which would lead to Jesus' crucifixion. So no doubt who Jesus was talking about in this particular reference. Of all the 12 disciples, he was the only one that uh, fell to that degree and ended up not being part of the 12. Now, you might think, oh, this is slightly different. It's referring to a devil. Well, there's actually no article in the Greek. So it just uses the word diabolos. So for all intents and purposes, if you looked at the original language, it would just be saying "He he is devil. So you can't really mount that argument. There is no real distinction in the original language. Let's have a look at another example, uh, just by way of illustration. This is going right to the end of the New Testament uh, in Revelation chapter two. Now, the good part about Revelation chapter two is that we know exactly who these words are written to in Revelation. Parts of Revelation are quite hard to understand and they were written generally to all believers, but that is not the case with Revelation chapter two. It is a specific letter addressed to a specific group of believers at a specific time period. So we know exactly who it's written to and to these believers, John, the Apostle John, who was the author, or the writer at least, of Revelation, he says, speaking on behalf of, or recording a message on behalf of Jesus Christ himself, he says, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. Now, it's fairly well documented. The Roman history during this period of time, we know exactly who was responsible for imprisoning and persecuting Christians at this time in history, and it was of course the Roman uh, authorities. So again, we have someone where we we know who it's talking about, and yet they are labelled uh, the devil in this case. So key point to note where you've got examples where the word devil is used, and it's not referring to a supernatural being It's not referring to some power uh, of gigantuan proportions. It's actually just talking about human beings acting in a certain way. So that's just a few examples to look at and to think about and hopefully you're left with the impression there that once you read the word devil it's not automatically talking about the supernatural being that you might be familiar with. But we've gotta go beyond that because of course We need to understand that even in English, words are given different meanings. So just because a word is used in one particular way, in one particular context, does not mean that in every single context it must always have exactly the same meaning. So sure, we've got some examples of the word diabolos where it's not referring to a supernatural devil. Uh, It's referring to groups of believers or particular people that are behaving in certain ways. But that does not mean that in every single occurrence the word diabolos can never mean a supernatural being. Um, Take for example, an English example of course, if I say to someone, I see. They they might have just told me something and I might say, I see. Now that could mean a couple of things. It could mean I actually physically see something or it could mean I understand, I comprehend. So you can see you've got exactly the same words but they've got completely different meaning. In fact they're sort of conceptually related, but it's exactly the same English word. We've just got given it different meanings. So what we need to look more, more fully is look at the concepts, the concept of a devil, and see whether that applies or that is consistent with other issues and other things we learn from the Bible. Now, unfortunately, we actually find, well, fortunately, I guess, uh, we find that the concept of a devil is really an impossibility because there are other key fundamental themes of the Bible that would be completely contradicted if a devil did actually exist. And there's three main examples that I wanted to look at. So, if you have a devil, in the way that the the churches describe it, you have acknowledged the fact that there must be some supernatural power outside God's control. So, there's some supernatural power uh, causing evil and God isn't able to get rid of it. Uh, So he can maybe uh, banish it to certain areas of the earth, but can't completely destroy it. Now, this is completely contradictory to what we understand of God. So the God of the Bible is an all-powerful God. He's an all-knowing God. And you put those two characteristics together, and there's no chance that anything could get out of his control. Uh, And even if he wasn't an all-powerful God, even if he was an all-knowing God, that would be enough. If you're all-knowing, particularly foreknowing, so we're told that God knows the future. If there was some challenge, some rebellious angel that was about to uh, come up against God, he would know all about it in advance and be able to prepare. So even some aspects of God's character would be enough to get rid of the concept of a devil. But when you put the complete picture of God, the God of the Bible, and contrast it with the devil, it is a complete impossibility. The next one we wanted to look at is this idea of where sin and evil comes from. Now, again, if you believe in the existence of a devil, you have to inherently accept that when you're looking at this from a human perspective, that sin is an external threat. So it comes from outside of you. The devil is sort of warring against you and externally influencing you. Now, that, again, is completely different from what the Bible tells us. And the Bible actually gives us a lot of advice about the source of evil and gives us a lot of advice about how to fight that. So there's quite a bit of discussion on this topic, and in these discussions we realise that it's completely different from this picture of an external threat that uh, you'd be left with if you believed in a devil, or at least the devil that the church has described. And the third point we wanted to have a look at is this concept of an immortal, sinful being. So the devil is immortal. There's been one devil, apparently, that has uh, played humans throughout all human history, they're not dying. They don't have the same human lifespan that we have, as the churches describe it. But of course, they're the epitome of sinfulness. So you've got this idea of someone who doesn't die and yet they're sinful. Now, that is a complete contradiction of a very fundamental issue in the Bible. God is described as the source of all life. And most specifically, he is described as the only custodian of eternal life. And yet, again, we find that uh, this concept of a devil would mean that. God has lost control of that very precious resource. Eternal life has been given to this sinful creature, uh, which is totally outside God's laws and principles. So for all these reasons, I'm suggesting to you that it's not just a matter of looking at the meaning of the word. I think the meaning of the words uh, and how they're used is quite useful, but uh, let's look at it at a conceptual level. And I think we can find that not only is it unlikely for the devil to exist, it's actually impossible for the word devil to have that meaning in the New Testament. So, let's just go back and revisit some of those points and support what we're saying with some scriptural references. So, remember the first point we mentioned is the fact that God is in supreme control. So, in fact, in our first hymn, you would have heard, us, heard the words uh, that referred to the believers praying to God to relieve them from temptation, to save them out of temptation. Now, that would be completely... Uh, useless, and in fact quite uh, distressing and pathetic in a sense. Um, if God was not able to do that, if that was something that was outside God's control, if there was some supernatural being which was controlling our temptations, but the Bible doesn't give that picture at all. God is described as a supreme being in supreme control of everything, particularly moral issues. So, as you can see, there's a very short quote from Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8 verse 31. God says. Sorry, Paul says, what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? So in this section in Romans, God is encouraging the believers who in Rome were going through a horrific time and it was only going to get worse. Uh, And he says, well, don't worry. If God's for us, who can be against us? Now that might sound all very nice, but if God is not able to control the things that influence our life, Uh, particularly the moral issues, then it's really small comfort indeed. And interestingly enough, Paul actually goes on and gives examples, specific examples of the sort of challenges that are under God's control. He's not saying God's going to get rid of all these challenges, but he's saying all of these challenges are subject to God's will. So God will be able to allow us to work through these things. So he refers to extreme life circumstances, He doesn't quite mention pestilences, but uh, I'm sure we'd be able to associate a little bit with those sorts of extreme life experiences just at present. He talks about battles and wars and and death and famine. Um, So he says, doesn't matter, God's got that under control. He talks about life and death and says, God's got that under control. And he then, quite interestingly, refers to angels, principalities and powers and says, doesn't matter if they're against us, don't worry, God's for us. Now, that would be extremely hollow comment if there is this angel, as the churches sort of propose, this rebel angel that has become the devil and is now sort of out of God's control. God can't put an end to his behaviour. And yet, that's a total contrast to what uh, Paul is saying here. And he actually even says, well, it doesn't matter what time you're talking about, uh, whether it's present or future, God's got that all un- under control as well. Uh, So you can't say that Paul was writing at a specific time period here and his comments don't apply across the board. Well, they do. They have to apply throughout all all time. So that is the picture which the Bible paints of God. Someone in supreme control, as we've said, and that is completely inconsistent with an idea of a devil. Now, the next uh, point that we mentioned is this idea of where sin comes from. And remember we said that the devil, uh, the concept of a devil, suggests of course that The uh, source of sin is outside of us. Well, as we've suggested, this is completely different from what the Bible tells us. Let's have a look at this quote in Mark chapter 7. Again, these are actually words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. If anyone knew knew about sin, it was him. So uh, he knew a lot about battling against sin. So as a consequence, uh, these words are of great interest. So he says, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and defile a man. So it's quite a comprehensive list. Uh, Some people have sort of said, well, yeah, we accept the fact that really humans have uh, an internal mechanism that generates sinful ideas, but really it's the devil that does all the really bad stuff. So humans sort of do the mild sins, but uh, the devil is responsible for the really really serious stuff. Well, after reading through that list, there's not much left for uh, the devil to do. There's some pretty serious sins on that list, and uh, if the devil really was uh, just sort of left to pick up the remainder, there wouldn't be too much for him to do. So not really a very significant concept for us to talk about at all. So this is the picture which the Bible paints sin comes from within us. And the key point to note is that we're not just taking this quote out of context. Um, They were actually discussing this very issue, this issue of internal versus external. Uh, And that's why Jesus quite clearly says those bolded words up front, uh, from within. It's not just a casual comment. They're actually talking about ceremonial washing. And they were saying, well, should we wash the externals? And Jesus says, look, it's not really the big issue. Don't worry about cleanliness. I know we're very worried about it at present, but he says the real issue is not about cleanliness. It's actually about moral defilement, and moral defilement is clear, completely different to cleanliness, uh, physical cleanliness, that is, and it has a different source. So this verse is right on topic. It's not just a mistake in the word that he used. Words that he used. You read the context and you understand that uh, it's uh, it's definitely demonstrating that humans are the source of sin. Now, the final point I wanted to look at was this idea of the interrelation between sin and death. So when you read the Bible, and not just the New Testament for that banner, you come across a fundamental equation, and that fundamental equation basically says that the wages of sin are death. So the consequence of sin is death. So basically sin and death are cause and effect. So as we see there in Romans chapter six, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So this of course is a complete contradiction of this idea that there could be an immortal being that is sinning, in fact is the epitome of sin, and yet still lives forever. And as I said, this is not just the New Testament concept. It started right at the very beginning of the Bible. In fact, you only go a few chapters into the Bible and you hear this reference to the connection between sin and death. Adam and Eve, the very first human beings, were told that if they disobeyed the commandment which God gave them, they would die. And subsequent experience brought that out. They did disobey God's commandments and they did die. So there was no doubt that God meant what he said And there is this cause and effect relationship between sin and death. In fact, interestingly, the actual reason why they sinned is because they doubted that connection. There was a suggestion made to them that, well, they could sin and they wouldn't die. So, in fact, the concept of a devil is the same old false suggestion warmed up again. Um, And that's actually been the cause of the problem uh, from the very beginning. So this is an issue that has been a a concept, a fundamental principle throughout all time, from the very beginning all the way through into history. And in fact, um, Adam and Eve found it out very physically because they sinned. Uh, Previously, they were not dying, they became dying. In fact, uh, God specifically took action to make sure that they would not live forever. He drove them out of the Garden of Eden to make sure that they could not obtain eternal life. So there is, has been this key principle, this connection between sin and death. Now, if you accept the concept of a devil, you have to accept that this fundamental principle is flawed at the very least. Or you might even reach the point where you say that God is unfair. So God applies this principle to some people, but not to others. So it really does have some very significant ramifications for what you think about God, not just about a devil. So there are those three key principles whereby I suggest that regardless of what particular illustration and example of the word you're looking at, the word devil that you're looking at, I suggest to you that the idea of a devil cannot be reconciled with some very fundamental concepts throughout scripture. But there is obviously a devil. The Bible refers to it over 101 times, as we've said, in, in the New Testament alone. So what is it? We can't just say the church's idea of a devil doesn't exist. We've got to explain what the Bible does say about a devil. Now, this verse here coming from Hebrews is actually really interesting because it gives us a description of what the devil is. So let's just read it. So for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, And from the context we can determine that that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ also himself took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. So we've got this concept. It's talking about the physical nature that we bear and it's saying that the children or the the people that Jesus Christ came to save, his family, had exactly the same nature as Jesus Christ did. So humans were flesh and blood. Jesus Christ was a human just like all other flesh and blood. And as a consequence, he took on that same character, that same nature, I should say. Why? Because he needed to destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, that's interesting because we have this equation between death or the power of death and the devil. Now, this is interesting because we've already read a phrase which draws a connection between what has the power to kill us. And that, of course, is sin. Remember we said the wages of sin is death. So sin, of course, must be another situation where another trigger point for death. So the devil has the power of death, but we also know that sin has the power of death from Romans chapter 6. So there is this parallel. So just illustrating this diagrammatically, we find that When we put these two verses together, we've got either the devil leading to death and we've got sin leading to death. Same sort of concept. Now, how do we reconcile these two principles? Now, obviously you could say the Bible contradicts itself. We're going to discard that because that's just not even worth thinking about. Um, So we've got to reconcile these two concepts. So there's a couple of alternatives. We could say, well, the, the devil leads us to sin and then the sin leads us to death. So that's possible. You could read that. Or you could actually say, well, the devil leads to death in some cases, and sin leads to death in other cases. So it's just two different alternatives of the same pathway. You're just taking two different pathways to get to the same destination. Or alternatively, you could actually say, no, no, the devil really, the word devil, the term devil, the concept of a devil is really just another description of sin, of human thinking, And that, of course, then leads to death. So just from a purely logical perspective, that's your three alternatives, um, if you're not going to accept that the Bible contradicts itself, which of course has been disproven so many times. So which one of those is correct? Well, we need to actually turn to another reference to clarify which one actually is the correct interpretation. And this brings us to our reading for tonight. So we probably appreciate the context of, of what we read now, But in James chapter 1, remember James is making some very clear comments about the exact source of temptation. He's talking to a group of people that are under very significant testing, and he says one of the key things you must understand going through this process is you've got to understand where temptation comes from. So really, I guess it's another reference that's similar to the ones we've already looked at in Mark chapter 7, where it says that uh, sin comes from within, within us. But let's just read it. Because it makes some very interesting comments. So, James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So, again, we've got a similar equation. We've got something that leads to death, and obviously, in this case, it's sin. But the interesting thing about this verse, well, actually, there's two key things that are interesting about this verse. Number one, it is a comprehensive definition. So notice there it says, every man, when he is tempted, is drawn away. So this is meant to be an absolutely exhaustive statement. It's a description of sin for everyone. Doesn't apply to some people in some circumstances. This is a comprehensive statement. So the second thing is, it's very clear about where sin comes from. In fact, it actually starts several steps before sin is even described. It talks about lust, it talks about lust conceiving, and then it talks about sin. So it started way back, uh, several steps before the verses that we've previously been looking at. And even though it goes all the way back in time to the very commencement of the sin process, there's no description of the devil. So how do we reconcile that? Well, basically, if we wanted to put it on our diagram here, you'd have to say that temptation leads to lust, and then lust leads to sin, and then sin leads to death. So how do we reconcile that? Well, obviously we have to suggest that, well, it can't be the devil that's leading to sin which leads to death, because James said, every time someone is tempted, this is the process. So if there's some other process there, it don't, can't really match. So can we say that the devil is just another cause of death? Well, no, it's not. So we really are left with this idea. The only one that's correct is that the devil is sin. And of course, that then leads to death. So by putting these three verses together, we actually understand that the devil is in just another description of human thinking, that human thinking which leads to sin, that incorrect human thinking which so often possesses us, unfortunately. So this is the biblical description of the devil. In some cases, it actually finds a physical manifestation. So if if someone is motivated by this human, fallible way of thinking, they will be called a devil, which is, we've already looked at some of those uh, references already. But in other cases, it's just referring to the concept. So we need to fight against the devil. We need to fight against that way of thinking. So this is the consistent picture which humans are, subject to. Now, the next illustration that I wanted to look at is the idea of demons. So we've looked at quite a few illustrations coming out of the concept of of devils, and we've looked at how the Bible describes devils, really just another way of human thinking. But demons is obviously a different Greek word, and it's actually used in a fairly significantly different context so as a consequence i wanted to treat this as a separate topic so where do we find these references to devils being the greek word for demons daemon as we mentioned earlier well quite quite uh, commonly it's used in the gospel records so the records of the life of jesus christ and also some references in the book of acts particularly um, where healings were happening and those types of things But look at the way the language is used. It's quite clearly referring to what people would commonly refer to as a demon being cast out. So here's just a reference. This is actually words from Jesus Christ himself. In Matthew 12, he's actually talking to the Pharisees about how he is able to heal these people, these people with these illnesses. And he says, If I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, so. We won't go any further than that, but it's basically saying that uh, Jesus himself describes his own behaviour as casting out devils. So why does he use this sort of language? This is part of the uh, question we want to answer now. The next one is uh, the issue around uh, the fact that he passes this power on to other people. So in Luke chapter 9, Jesus again calls his 12 disciples and he gave them power and authority over the devils. In fact, it says, over all devils. Now, that's interesting, at a couple of levels. Number one, uh, it is referring to all devils. So this is a comprehensive power that they're given. So again, this is, this is not Jesus himself speaking, but this is a narrative comment. So this is the words of the Bible itself, um, effectively saying, well, they were given power over devils, over all devils. So again, you're left thinking, well, is the Bible telling us that there is such a thing as a devil or a demon that causes these sorts of illnesses? Well, I don't think so. But let me just um, uh, look at. Sorry, let me just um, uh, draw out one point that comes out of both of these verses. So the first verse here uh, actually illustrates that God has power over these demons. So, in Matthew chapter 12, it, Jesus says. I'm casting out devils by the spirit of God. So the implication that comes out of that is that God has the power over these demons. So God has the power over these demons. Jesus Christ obviously has the power over these demons. And thirdly, we now see that this power is given to the disciples. So the question that actually comes out of these verses is again the same sort of question that we've raised in relation to devils or diabolos. There cannot be a a force in existence that is outside the control of God. And in this case, we can be even more uh, definite and say that in this case, this force, whatever it is, is inside the control of God, inside the control of Jesus Christ, and also in control of his disciples. So again, we're left wondering, well, if it is a demon, what good is it if it's still within the control of God and even those that follow God? And this final one here is just an illustration of Jesus Christ, I guess, participating in this language. It says that he rebuked the devil and said, depart out of him. And the devil actually departed out of this particular child that was being being healed. So again, we sort of see language that might suggest that Jesus Christ supported this idea of there being demons that caused illness. Well, just look at that verse a little more closely. It actually says, he rebuked the devil, and the child was cured. So we've got two different forms of language here. One is saying, well, there's this demon that's been thrown out, and the other one's just saying, well, it's just a medical problem. It's been cured. So in fact, you actually find this in a few references in the Bible. There's interchangeable language. In one part, they're referring to someone who's got a medical illness, and in the other, uh, in quite a few verses, just a few verses along, they'll actually uh, refer to them having a devil. So you actually get the impression when you read these verses closely that their use of the word devil was really just a sort of slang term or a a, um, locally accepted term for a medical illness. In fact, if you read Luke chapter 17, the father of this child that had this illness actually came to Jesus and pled with him to actually heal this son. And he said, my son is a lunatic. Please heal him. And he goes on to describe uh, his symptoms. Now, I know lunatic is not really a politically correct term at present, but it was, up until quite recently, just a description of a medical illness, a mental deficiency. We had lunatic asylums here in Adelaide up until relatively recently. So, even in this one verse or at least a few verses that talk about this child. You have this interchangeable language. It swaps from a medical issue to a devil and then back to a medical issue again, being cured. So uh, you're actually, when you read these references carefully, you will find that really just because they were using the word devil doesn't necessarily mean they believed in this idea of a demon being cast out. It was just the common vernacular at the time. But let's just prove that. So we could suggest that, it's based on relatively thin evidence, but here's something that is a definite reference, which demonstrates the connection between medical um, curing and this idea of a devil. So this is in Matthew 8, again talking about Jesus Christ, and it's talking about the fact that many people came to him to be healed. So let's just read these couple of verses. They brought unto him, Jesus Christ, many that were possessed with devils, And he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, he took our infirmities and he bare our sicknesses. So here we have a Bible explained definition. So he says, right at the front of the list, he says, they cast out devils and spirits. What does that really mean? Well, he says, well, you know how the Old Testament described that? Well, the Old Testament actually described that by Jesus Christ in prophecy, taking on people's infirmities and sicknesses. So he's just talking about people's illnesses. Even the word infirmities has the idea of illness. We used to have infirmaries, Uh, another word for, for hospitals. That was the concept. So every single description in that verse is basically saying, well, even though devils and casting out spirits is obviously top on the list of what Jesus was doing. Really, it's just an illustration of illnesses and sicknesses. So by a direct parallel of language, we find that this is how the Bible describes these demons. But there's still this key question to think, well, if Jesus knew that people were going to get confused about this idea of demons, why didn't he use very clear and precise language to, to prove that there was no demons, or to make sure that people knew that he wasn't sort of promoting this idea of demons. There were actually some people, particularly the Greeks and some of the Jews, actually did believe in demons. So you'd think in this context, Jesus would be very careful with his language to make sure that he was clear about uh, what he was saying. Well, that's true. And in fact, in some references, you do actually find Jesus changing the terminology. Someone comes to him and says, I've got a devil. And he says, well, actually, um, not quite. Uh, so there is some illustrations where Jesus is very careful with his language, but that's probably beyond what we've got time to cover tonight. But there is an overarching principle here, and it's far more important than this sort of concept of how you believe, why you believe you're sick. It's been said, of course, that the Bible is not a medical textbook, and that is absolutely correct. But the Bible is something far more important, and that is, it is a moral textbook and this is the overarching principle which Jesus is advancing here by his use of this language. Now, in order to understand this concept, we just need to take a few examples of the type of miracles which Jesus did and what he did with those miracles, how he used them to actually teach people. So here's just a few examples. So in Mark chapter two, fairly, on, fairly early on in Christ's ministry, he actually forgave a man that was sick with the palsy. You might remember this story. They actually broke up the roof and lowered this man down to Jesus Christ through the roof of a house. And he said to this man, your sins are forgiven. And shortly after that, he got up and walked, walked away, totally cured. And there was actually quite an uproar in the house about the fact that Jesus Christ had said your sins are forgiven. And they sort of questioned whether he had the authority to do that or not. But Jesus was quite deliberately making a connection between the forgiveness of sin and the curing of this disease. This is an isolated incident. Um, Here's another one. Jesus actually heals a lame man. This man had been lame uh, for 38 years, so very significant illness. Completely changed this man's life. And the man actually uh, gets up, walks away, carries his bed, so quite completely healed. Um, And later on, Jesus comes back to him, actually finds him in the temple, and this is what he says to him. He says... To the man, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. So again, he's drawing this connection between sin and sickness. He's not saying that if I sin, then I'm going to get sick. And if I sin really bad, I'll get a really bad sickness. The idea of direct retribution and proportionate retribution are specifically denied in the Bible. But he is saying that sin is part of the problem that leads to disease and death. And he's highlighting this issue. But you might be looking at those two examples and saying, well, none of them are actually demons being cast out. So how can you say that Jesus was trying to teach a lesson and use this sort of concept when he was casting out demons? Well, it's actually more than an actual miracle. It's actually a parable. So Matthew chapter 12 is a very interesting comment by Jesus Christ. Let's actually turn there. So Matthew chapter 12 and in verse 43, we find Jesus making a very interesting comment about the significance of unclean spirits. Now, Jesus Christ used this term unclean spirits um, when referring to people with mental illnesses and what other people referred to as devils, and this is how he taught a lesson from that concept. So, Matthew chapter 12 and verse 43. So, in verse 43, he says, When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest, and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return unto my house, from whence I came out. And when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. And he goeth, and taketh with himself seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter in, and they dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be unto this wicked generation. So he uses this idea of an unclean spirit going out of a man and then sort of comes back again and finds, well, there's lots of room here. I'm going to get some more unclean spirits in there. So it's obviously talking in very figurative language. You will see there, obviously, the uh, unclean spirit refers to him as as a home, but he's talking about a man. So there is figurative language being used here. And Jesus Christ is basically saying that an unclean spirit is a bad way of thinking. It's human thinking. It's the devil all over again. So by casting it out, it's symbolic of getting rid of bad thinking. And by using this language of casting out a devil, of casting out demons, Jesus Christ was trying to highlight to people that there was a moral lesson to be learned from every single healing that he did. And every time he actually cast out a demon, and particularly when he used that language, he was asking for them to remember that there was a lesson for everyone to learn, whether they were whole or not, whether they were mentally disabled or not. We needed to look at that example of someone who'd just been healed, who had this sort of unclean spirit cast out of them. And we need to look at that and say, well, are there things in my life I need to get rid of? and obviously the key lesson from this particular parable is that uh, not only do you have to get rid of these things, you have to replace them with something positive, because if you don't replace them with something positive, then it's going to get filled up with lots of other evil things. So it's quite clear that Jesus Christ is talking morally here. You'll see that he refers to the unclean spirits as wicked, and in fact, you look at that whole chapter, and it's not talking about illness in any degree. In fact, the example immediately before, he's talking about unfaithfulness, people that were, had so little faith they couldn't believe that Jesus Christ was the son of God. And immediately afterwards, you can see that reference there to this wicked generation. So all the way through this section, he's talking about wickedness. He's not talking about illness or mental deficiencies, any type of medical problem. He's saying it's all about moral lessons. And so essentially when Jesus Christ used this language, he was doing what he did with a lot of miracles. He was asking people to learn the moral lesson from these experiences. And I'm sure because they were just so remarkable, because they were so extraordinary based on what their common experience was, a lot of people would have got that lesson and would have understand the moral force of what Jesus Christ was doing. So Jesus Christ wasn't trying to be confusing. He wasn't trying to leave people uh, in in doubt as to whether he believed in demons or not. He certainly did not, but as a consequence, he did want us to learn the moral lesson of what he was doing with these miracles. But we might be saying, well, why does all this matter? If someone believes that there's this demon supernatural power uh, and someone else believes that uh, it's our own human thinking, does it really matter? Well, it certainly does matter for all the reasons that we've already stated. It has some serious implications about who God is, about God's degree of control over the world, and about what he's prepared to suffer for us and how he allows us to suffer. But there's also a very key significance of this concept and that is it tells us about our future. Now, when we looked at the idea of demons, and when we looked at the idea of diabolos, whichever one we came to, we found that Jesus Christ had power over that force, whatever it was. In fact, that reinforces this idea that he had power over, sorry, that it was human thinking, because there was no doubt that Jesus Christ had power over human thinking. He was able to totally conquer that and be sinless. But No matter which way we look at it, if we say that Jesus Christ has destroyed the power of death, destroyed the devil, as we learn in Hebrews chapter 2, or whether he has the power to control demons, either way, we're left with an assurance that everything is under God's control. And as I said, that's very important for the future. Now, you might be thinking, well, how does this have an impact on our future? Well, we've learned that the devil has the power of death, Now, if Jesus Christ has destroyed the devil, has power over the devil, then ultimately what that means is Jesus Christ must have destroyed death. And that's actually consistent with the Bible. So I'm going to finish off with a quotation from the very back of the Bible, Revelation 21. And here we have exactly that described. It says, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. So no more death. That is actually a reality which God promises. Now you've got a choice. You can believe in a devil. And if you believe in a devil, you would have good grounds to be totally sceptical of that claim. Because a devil questions whether God either wants to or has the power to control evil. And even if he wants to, you might say, well, this is God's intention, but how do we know that's going to happen? If you believe in a devil, you have every right to be sceptical of that claim because up until now, God has allowed some pretty significant departures from his purpose and his principles. But if you believe that the devil is nothing more than human nature, you can be absolutely confident in that promise for the future. You can rest assured that any of the challenges that we face are easily able to be overcome as we learnt from Romans chapter 8. We are not fighting supernatural powers, we are fighting ourselves and as a consequence we can be certain that Jesus Christ has conquered that power and we are able to share in his victory and we can therefore look forward to this time when there will be no more death, there will be no more pain, no more crying. I'm sure that's a beautiful time which particularly in these times of challenge really is a great hope for all of us and we'd certainly like to help anyone who wants to know more about how to be part of that plan. Thank you.